0: You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, teaching our registrars about men's health, presented by Dr Ravine Sadai and Dr Justin Coleman. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families.
1: I'm Justin Coleman and I'm a GP in Brisbane, so currently sitting in Brisbane. So I'm Director of Medical Education for the Northern Territory in NTGPE, I'm responsible for the GP supervisor educational updates, upskilling for the last three years in the Northern Territory. And I also am on the board of GPSA, which is a voluntary board, which I've been on for a couple of years now. And I'm delighted to introduce
2: a good friend of mine, Dr. Rev Sedai. G'day, Rev. G'day, everyone. Thanks, Justin. So my name's Ravine or Rev. I'm in Bacchusmarsh, which is about 60 kilometres west of Melbourne. Run a practice here with a, a, a few doctors, and we've had GP registrars for many years. So uh, we do a lot of community events, and one part of my community events is doing Men's Health, and part of that is the pub clinic, which I've done as a community event throughout the uh, last 12 years mainly. So it's where we have a beer and chat about men's health amongst the community in a pub. I met Justin a few years ago and uh, was uh, lucky enough to join the band, the Youth IMix, and uh, we had a lot of fun playing a couple of conferences, so hopefully playing again later on this year at the GP conference in Melbourne.
1: Wonderful. What's your
2: other band called, Rev? It's very famous in Bacchus Marsh. It's called You've Seen Worse. <laughs> so it's like a good GP Set the expectations low so people are happy with your
1: result so we're going to present you with a case study I'll run through a few male health stats and preventative health stuff then I get to pick Rav's brain's and Rev apparently has four pearls of wisdom. All right. So there's those three components to tonight. So let's start with a case study. And your registrar comes into you, your female registrar, and she's seen a 50-year-old fellow earlier that day. And you're talking to her after work, a bit of a teaching sesh. And the fellow was born in Vietnam, but you know, speaks reasonable English, enough to get by a consultation. He's been out here for 20, 25 years, and he wanted a checkup because he'd turned 50 and his family said get a checkup. So his risk factors are he's a smoker, he's obese, not morbidly obese, he's got high lipids. So your registrar sort of gives you this summary. If you look back through the last lipid screen a few years ago, they're a bit high. Blood pressure also high, 16490, HbA1c just over diabetic range a year ago when someone else measured it. And he doesn't do his national bowel test screening kits like most of the population. He chucks them in the bin because he doesn't quite understand them. The reason your registrar comes in is because she became a bit frustrated and realised that she didn't handle the consultation all that well because it became a bit of argy-bargy. She wanted him to get an STI check because as she points out to you, you know, that you've told me we should be screening people. So I did the right thing. But then he started getting annoyed and he said he's married and maybe the lack of English, as first language didn't quite help. And he didn't need these sorts of things. He became a bit upset and the registrars come in basically saying, look, I didn't do
0: brilliantly on this.
1: How could you help? You've got a chance to teach a registrar something. Now, you could choose to teach her about STI screening, but, you know, to me, that's a fairly sort of black and white sort of thing to teach from this. If you were going to teach her something in terms of the consultation flow, how to get things going from the start of the consultation to the end of the consultation, what sort of learning points might come out of this sort of consultation with this 50-year-old man?
2: I think it's important to ascertain what the patient wants. It's a language barrier may be an issue with this gentleman. And a 50-year-old screen is something that we can teach our registrars and there's some pretty easy things that we can look at in terms of what we teach them in cardiovascular risks, et cetera. Pat's agenda, doctor's agenda, making yeah. a list and prioritising, normalising that every person means something different by a checkup. I think that's important. And and other risk factors that uh, this gentleman has, which is quite a few. So perhaps prioritizing them. There's quite a
1: theme there about asking what the person expects, and particularly as the Person became upset at the end. Maybe that is something which really might have subverted that. And so you weren't in the room at the time, but certainly suggesting to the registrar look, these consultations tend to go better if you take a step back and instead of the person says check up, you think this is what it means and immediately launch into it, maybe you check with him. So I think that's certainly an excellent way of getting the consultation going. And and pointing out that, of course, helps your registrar in many future consultations, not just in a men's health consultation, not just in an STI screening consultation. In terms of the communication, certainly people with English, not as their first language, are more likely to run into trouble. I guess part of that might be cultural expectations of health as well, particularly
2: in blokes who don't come all that often, maybe, Rev, Absolutely. So I think that finding what's valuable for them, what do they want and prioritising what they need, I think it's also important to try and engage with the bloke and find common ground, which will be one of the things that we find somewhat difficult in men and perhaps people with different cultures as well.
1: Yeah, obviously, there's lots of generalizations in men's and women's health, and, and clearly we should, should say the outset there's a billion exceptions. But usually, most women by the age of 50 have been to the doctor a whole bunch, had a whole bunch of tests, whether their mothers had pregnancies or not. So, for them, we sort of had this assumption that generally they're used to you go to the doctor, the doctor tells you some stuff, you get a thing for a blood test, you go off and have the blood test, lots of STI screens. So, at that age, we tend to expect that. But more men, will have slipped through their GP cracks, I guess. You could very well get to the age of 50 as a okay, healthy, reasonably healthy man and really have had not much at all to do with the doctor. And then finally, the clinical value for the preventative health effort. Now,
2: what are the general rules of where to put your
1: effort in something where there's lots of places you could put it? How do you approach it?
2: I think in someone who's got risk factors, I think you place it on the things that give you bang for buck. So that's the cardiovascular health. And I think that, as we know, the cardiovascular health issues has been shown with recent deaths and celebrities is a a big thing now. So I suspect that preventative health effort in a 50-year-old diabetic is probably with the cardiovascular health and with the diabetes as well. So I think in terms of clinical value, we focus on that. In terms of health value, and what
1: I mean by that is what Rav said, I mean, we would eventually get the relationship going, get him back, do them all. That's fine. Understood. But just if you are going to rank the top two of health value, where you suggest to your registrar, look, even if you don't do anything else much, get cracking on this, either this consultation or, or the next one, but get going. And then choose your bottom two. So It's where you say to the registrar, look, you know, everything's important, but you've got to get in your head some sort of Priorities for a 50-year-old male. Looking at the top, we've got quit smoking and BP control. I think that's about right. Two, three, and four are all medications. I mean, obviously, it's lifestyle as well, but the BP beats the statins and the hypoglycemics. And the lowest two, we've got the STI and the statins and hypoglycemics, about similar Just for the record, I spent a lot of my geeky time looking at evidence-based medicine, and if you had asked me to rank them, I would go quit smoking, number one, BP, number two. I would go statin, number three, hypoglycemic, number four, and then I think fecal occult blood, STI, I think are both important, but probably down the bottom. In the Red Book, Kristal Maher and Tammy Hoffman and Ben Yould, the late great Kristal Maher, may he rest in peace, did a study on analysing three of these factors in the Red Book and they actually had a 50-year-old man and they calculated the health benefit and quitting smoking absolutely trumps all the rest, 10 times the benefit of lowering lipids, and 50 times greater than the FOBT. To be fair, though, what they didn't say in that, and again, being a bit geeky, I did notice this quitting smoking, they counted as if you actually quit smoking, as opposed to if your registrar addresses quitting smoking, which, of course, is a far lesser effect. I think the number needed to treat for someone like this fella is in the 20s in terms of if the registrar has. 20-something consultations where she talks about quitting smoking as opposed to if she doesn't, then one extra man will stop smoking, which, you know, as we all know, is such a huge benefit. That's actually still very good. And interestingly, in this study, they do say generally the benefits of these preventive health things are generally lower in women. And that's based on just a statistical reality that their baseline risks are lower. Another Question. So at what age do you recommend PSA screening to your male patients during a general checkup? So what are you going to tell your registrar? The next question, which is very similar, which ages do you advise your registrar to perform a DRE to detect prostate cancer as a preventative measure on this fella? The trick is they're both trick questions because the recommendations for both are never. And when I say never, I'm saying never for a routine screen. So the RACGP Red Book guidance says PSA screening is not recommended because the benefits have not been shown to outweigh the harms. GPs have no obligation to offer PSA testing to asymptomatic men, which is what a screening is by definition. Then if requested after discussion to address the things, you can do so a PSA test is acceptable. There's a very, very good article written by a Jay Coleman, and MJA editorial last year and called excessive PSA screening in general practice. And in fact, there's no new evidence suggesting increased benefits of screening. In fact, nearly all around the world now, even countries that used to recommend it are now no longer recommend it. And so there's generally uh, throughout nearly all the world, most guidelines, Scottish, British, American, the Americans obviously do more screening than most other countries they don't recommend screening so in fact there's no big studies suggesting it will go the other way and in fact the predictors are that it's more likely to go further and further away from screening particularly as prostate treatments get better as late stage prostate treatments get better in fact screening becomes less valuable so there you go a little trick question there and I just thought I'd run through a few stats just generally. So the BEACH study, which unfortunately was defunded, but the last results were published in 2016, which is a bit old now, but who GPC? So generally in the 15 to 44 45 to 64-year age group, particularly GPC fewer males, That um, shouldn't come as any particular surprise to you, but that's just the stats there. If you look at the risk factors for men overweight, Weight or obese, it's two-thirds of adult males. The latest stats in Australia, which is uh, pretty extraordinary. Sufficient physical activity in older men, and that's adjusted for their age, so as recommended, the guidelines by their age are only one in four. Sufficient fruit and veggies is very few blokes. And then these are plucked from things I thought were interesting. So most heroin deaths, overdoses occur in males nine out of 10 workplace deaths are in males. So there's big issues with female workforces generally, I think, you know, underpaid, undervalued, childcare, teaching, all that sort of stuff. But there's also issues with male workforces. So blokes go out and operate machinery and drive trucks and dig holes and die on the job a whole lot more. Of those convicted for acts of violence, 90% are male. But interestingly, victims are also 80% male. So again, we see many men who are victims on violence as well documented behavioral problems in schools 90 percent male and finally causes of death it basically there's no age group at all where male deaths don't outweigh female deaths hence you know you add them all up and you end up with a lower life expectancy in the 20th century every four years the life expectancy went up by one year. Isn't that extraordinary? So in 100 years, life expectancy in Australia went up 25 years. That is amazing, but always less for the males. What do under 14-year-olds die of? Death from accidental injury are twice as common in boys as girls. In teenagers, early 20s, motor vehicle accidents, are so three-to-one male suicide, three-to-one, and all cause three and a half to one in the 25. So the productive working adult life, coronary heart disease, four to one. Accidents, four to one. Suicides remain still very high, three to one. Cancer, double, all cause, double. Because we, and particularly our registrars, will tend to see more women than men. Yeah, sometimes I think some of this stuff gets forgotten, that there is this large amount of suffering and issues out there. And if we're seeing more women than men, then we're probably not seeing a lot of this stuff. So, Rav, here's your four pearls. Now, your first one is encouraging registrars to take the opportunity. So what are you going to tell this registrar of yours, not only about our case, but just in general?
2: I guess it's about opportunistic learning, opportunistic consultations. So we often see that our men come in with other things as highlighted in some of your slides. and In particular, the the younger bloke who may come in with an injury, some stitching or something of that nature. And I think it's an important thing to teach our registrars to Allow them to say, well, now that you've got an injury, I see that your skin's not so good. Perhaps we can talk about that. So I think taking an opportunity to look at some preventative health measures, it's a learned thing. It's engaging in the men in particular, but most men don't come in for one thing, but perhaps, you know, we can always end up with something else to talk about. Learning to normalise that as well
1: somehow, because, I mean... Do you think that some of them get a bit worried that the fellow thinks, you know, just sort of isn't interested or thinks they're strange for asking? Or?
2: Yeah. So I think that making it part of what you do and when we teach our registrars to say, well, take the opportunity to ask some preventative health measures and screening questions, I should say. And perhaps from that, you can engage and get an outcome in terms of a person coming in for something else and then doing some screening and some help with some prevention. And then your registrar has come back to you
1: and says, now, Rev, you did tell me on the first day I should be doing STI screening and stuff like that. So what do you say to her about that?
2: Context is important, obviously. And obviously, there's different demographics that we will see. Taking the opportunity with a certain demographic, I think, is important. So that's probably a learned thing and teaching our registrars to use the opportunity in an appropriate manner, perhaps, yeah. And you've mentioned sexual and
1: mental health conditions. and you know, Mental health is quite rightly, I guess, far more on our minds now than it probably was even a few years ago.
2: What advice do you have about that? I think if you see someone who perhaps comes in with an injury and you can perhaps see if their demeanour is not so good or they've come in for something else, perhaps ask, well, how are you going, mate? How are things going at home, at work? It's an opportunity to have a chat and perhaps assess their mental health. And if there's concerns, then the registrar may be able to explore that perhaps and ask some further screening questions. In a similar way from a sexual health, in a younger fellow, we can talk about the STI. But in an older fellow, we can often talk about erectile dysfunction and other factors and libido which can open up a lot of things that we can improve upon in a bloke's health. So I think be open to taking the opportunities. is what I would say.
1: Drug and alcohol. I think
2: in some ways that's an easier
1: entree if someone is a bit nervous about raising these things. You can say to a young female registrar, look, even a grumpy old bloke who you feel you're not really getting on with or doesn't like you or respect you or something like that, you know, they're not going to be that surprised if their doctor says how much you're drinking, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, you know, we'll see someone who's obviously a smoker and what I teach our registrars is that you don't try and lecture them, you just have a conversation with them perhaps and say, well, maybe next time if you want to have a chat about the smoking, book something and we'll have a chat. An opportunity is a good thing, perhaps not being too forthright and lecturing is another thing too. It's getting your foot in the door,
1: getting that rapport happening, ask that first question, whatever's the most appropriate one and just lets the fella know that you are thinking about this preventative stuff and you play the long game don't you 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 try to get him back and get him used to i suppose it's in some ways improving their health literacy as to what gps do and ask that's pearl number one taking the opportunity your second pearl engaging in
2: their language so tell her to learn vietnamese i think that there's a certain language with different people and in men, I think if you engage in their language, you'll probably be more likely to get a better outcome and get better engagement with them returning and getting the, the preventative health measures that we should be doing. So I think, as we said, assessing their literacy goes a long way to how you engage with a person and in particular a bloke. So, for instance, if you were meeting a tradie who's had an injury, as an example, and engaging in, oh, what do you do, mate? Oh, you're a plumber. Tell me about what you're doing. Oh, how does this injury work for you? And I think that if you're engaging in their type of language and what they say, as opposed to an older bloke, perhaps who's more interested in holidays or literature or reading. So I think if you find a way of engaging, they're more likely to engage back, more likely to feel comfortable. And so I think in terms of teaching a registrar to engage, finding a common ground, I think the engagement is a learned thing for a registrar as well. And something we can practice on. It's certainly not the case that you're wanting them to fake anything. But I mean, I,
1: I sometimes liken it to if you have a seven year old child there. I mean, most registrars actually, by the time they leave hospital, are done a PEDS rotation and they're often young themselves. <laughs> They're actually pretty good at that. And I sort of say to them, look, immediately your skill is such that you're able to switch immediately from one type of conversation with the parent to immediately asking the child something. And it's not at all a fake thing or you're not pretending you're someone else. It's just targeting your communication to be able to make them feel at home and comfortable and also to get as much information as you can. All right. And then your last point, Rev, about the lower health literacy.
2: If we're engaging with people and men, I think that the most vulnerable men are the one with the lower health literacy. And they're perhaps the ones that perhaps won't come back because they don't feel that there's a need. They don't feel there's a benefit. That's a common target that we try and improve their health. And if we find a way of engaging with the lower socioeconomic, with the lower health literacy, I think that goes a long way. I don't have all the answers in terms of how we teach that. I think that's a learned thing, but I think that's something that registrars need to practice. Yeah, and I guess you can certainly model it, if
1: nothing else. And sometimes just pointing out what you're modelling The interested, engaged registrar will take that on board and see. it won't work for every registrar, certainly. Yeah, so you're almost touching on the inverse care law there, aren't you, that most people with higher health literacy and higher levels of education and higher socioeconomic tend to know how to work the system to their own advantage and get more what they want and also articulate when they're not getting it, and quite rightly, And move us on whereas people who don't have those skills are much more likely to passively accept what the doctor seeing them gives them even if we were to look at that consultation as experienced GPs would think the doctor's not really doing all that much as much as they should be so whereas you're less likely to get pushback from that group all right Rev your next pearl your third pearl is find some common ground so what's that all about
2: Probably goes a little bit to the second point with engaging. We can increase the men's engagement by finding some common ground in terms of their specific interests. So, if you ask a bloke, tell me about yourself, things that can be important to uh, fellows are probably more things about perhaps family life and occupation and what do you do for a living. And in fact, going back to the consultation, well, how was this? medical issues going to affect your occupation and your work? How's it going to affect your family? So I think we found some other types of common ground where we can converse with the patient and make the patient, the men in particular, more comfortable. And I've put the example of knowing their footy team or knowing what makes them tick in terms of socially. If you've laid that groundwork,
1: then it makes the management plan a lot more relevant to them as well. So this fellow, you're trying to get him to stop smoking, lose a bit of weight, you know, take his blood pressure medications, you're going to start or whatever. It's a very different cell if he's a lonely, depressed person who lives alone versus if he's got kids or he mentioned he was married. You can sort of use some of those things or the bloke who's so busy at work all the time and genuinely, you know, gets exhausted and just hasn't got time for self-care. But you know, you can sort of say to your registrars, well, maybe tap into that and say, look, have you started noticing as you're getting a bit older, you're having more days off and you can't keep up and all that sort of thing. And sort of see if you can sell it on that sustaining your work rate and and stuff like
2: that i mean even in terms of the example you gave if you say well geez i love vietnamese food or something like that tell me about your mother's cooking so i think if you're finding some interests that they have and perhaps even revealing some of your interests so you can forge a bit of a better doctor patient relationship i think that goes a long way to continuing the engagement and continuing to help our, our men out a bit more It's interesting that last point about revealing a bit of yourself. You've probably
1: had a lot of registrars over the years as have I and I guess it's personality type really more than anything but one does find the occasional doctor who probably overshares and becomes too involved but then you have doctors at the other end who just see it all as a transactional distant sort of thing. Where do you sit on that scale and what do you say?
2: I think it is personality driven but I would encourage the registrar to find a way of getting a better patient doctor relationship especially when there's some challenges with engagement and there's some challenges with trying to do some better preventative health work and especially what we're trying to achieve in a bloke who's not so engaged i see your point it's actually difficult for everyone to do that and everyone to reveal a lot about themselves it's certainly personality driven i guess but i'd certainly encourage them to find a way that they can find some sort of common ground i think everyone's got something so whether it be food or Netflix or film or books, it doesn't have to be footy. It's footy in my town. But so I even have a little comment section of I've always got which team they barrack for or if whatever their interests are, and things of that nature. Like, you know, you always put something in the notes, perhaps that they've gone away on holidays and then the next time you say, Oh, how was your holiday? And they think you're a genius, but you're just reading the notes. There are some e-learning models about men's health. Healthymail.com.au and um, that's actually got some e-learning which are RACGP approved so I think directing our registrars but perhaps our female registrars who may not see as many men to those sort of e-learning opportunities is a good opportunity and I think the other thing to talk about with female registrars is just to make sure they've got some screening questions that they can practice let's get on to your final pearl now
1: so clearly, if you're going to get the occasional bloke who just is highly used to seeing the doctor and is highly health literate. But when appropriate, you should be ready to simplify your messages and instructions. So talk us through that one. Then
2: I read a study about men. They identified a collaborative approach and interventions are preferred and involving an action-orientated problem-solving. As an example, if a fellow comes in with with a back injury, they probably want a plan of action. And I think if you simplify the message for that example, perhaps saying, well, let's have a look at your back. Let's perhaps take some short-term anti-inflammatories. Let's perhaps see a physio and here's a few days off work and I'd like to see you in a week this is the plan of action. And I think that that's also orientated and collaborative. And I think you can do some good works. And I think if you sort of direct and have a, a simple sort of action plan, I think that's a better outcome for blokes in particular. Sometimes a, a simple approach can mean the difference between the patient coming back and not coming back, you know, if you make it a bit too complex. I've certainly done some ACT visits
1: where a yeah fella comes in and i can sort of tell i guess you just get a spidey gp since after you've been around for a while and i can tell in the first minute that the bloke's main interest is you know say the certificate and they don't really want to be there and they're not worried that their headache is cancer or anything but you know the registrar may be sort of somehow decides they might and so spends a lot of their effort sort of explaining what it's not and what it might be and a bit of the pathophysiology and that sort of thing and all of which are very useful tools for the registrar to have and they should know that and be able to explain everything so the registrar's got none of the tools wrong but then I sort of sit back and think should they have really whipped out all those tools for this consultation and I talked about it afterwards and sort of say, look you know maybe for this one the fellow would have been Perfectly happy for you just say, I've heard you, I've examined, you know, three different things, I've decided this is what your headache is, yep, doc, you know, take your whatever anti-inflammatory and have days off work, yes, doc. And then if you chose, then you would have a bit of time to sort of talk about some drugs and alcohol or, or other preventative stuff. Uh, but by the time you've sort of explained so much of information which you think that they want, but they probably didn't. The consultations drifted in in another direction and that's the end of it.
2: I think the other thing too on that point was about the body language of a bloke in particular. You can tell when they want something and how they're sitting and how they're... So I think that's another thing to teach our registrars, which we do in general. But I think if there's a frustration about someone and you bring it back to simplify the message I think that actually makes a bit of a difference so we can see if someone's body language isn't uh, and they're not listening to you and they're not going to listen to you so I think simplifying the message and having an action plan I think is certainly important. And you reckon they like the written instructions? Yeah I'm I'm a big one for that I actually copy and paste and put it on the little piece of paper under the script. Tear off bit. I think that's a good way of saying this is what I'd like you to do and actually you know, one, two, three, I copy and paste into notes so that's also in the notes. I teach my registrars to try and do that when appropriate and I think that does work for some because many things are forgotten in the consultation and perhaps the salient points may be highlighted by doing something like a little instruction plan. So
1: there are your four pearls and finally you reckon the 5As approach, which of course was written for many situations and ice ideas, concerns, expectations right back at the start when saying to the registrar, how could you have approached this consultation differently? But the 5As is useful and just take us through how it might apply to men in particular.
2: I think this was written for Men's Health from a medical journal some years ago. So yeah, ask about risk factors. I mean, these things have been highlighted as well, but risk factors and early signs of major health problems. So I think asking when you're talking to a bloke about the family history, things of that nature, what's happened before. And I think the other early signs of major health problems can be things that we can have screening questions for, like in our older blokes, like sleep apnea, erectile dysfunction, et cetera, which can be early signs of other Health problems. Assessing the level of risk and diagnosing as early as possible. I think that's self explanatory. I think if someone's got some exertional chest pain, we think, well, that's a high level of risk and we need to diagnose it as soon as possible. Or, you know,
1: suicidal ideation, they're not going to talk about that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. And then advise and motivate patients to lower their risk. And that can be lifestyle intervention, and of course, medication. And if they've got a motivation to look at things, if they've got a family history, you know, do we do your lipids? Can we do these sort of things? And to that end, to assist patients with the pharmacological and non-pharmacological therapies. So that goes to the lifestyle and non-lifestyle things and arrange referral and follow-up, which probably goes to the point about having a succinct plan, referring, and perhaps we'll see you again in a week or two. And let's talk about whatever so I think that applies for many things I think it can apply to mental health as well especially for our younger folk who have a higher risk of mental issues and suicide in the young adolescent male population we talked a lot about the medical side of things but the mental health side of things I think this could also be extrapolated too thank you so yeah this could be a bit of reading the Harris article what's a GP to do
1: medical journal of Australia 2006 could be a handy one to sort of give to your registrar to say have a read through that Rev, I enjoyed each of your pearls and at one time we all should get down to Bacchus Marsh to your local pub.
2: Yeah, come along for a pub clinic. That's a, it's a good night of health information and free beer. <laughs> who comes along to that patients or well, it's generally uh, community people uh, blokes who are are interested try to right. have different set groups like we get tradies and footy plays and footy clubs etc do it at different pubs so uh, yeah it's always been a social night we normally have a specialist like a cardiologist oncologist coming and saying a few words and having a discussion rather than a lecture about men's health
1: wonderful and it's
2: all sort of Free, like it's not really money involved or funding. No, it's all—it's just locally funded from some local people, and it's usually just a small amount. And there's no p- fee, and, and everyone does it voluntarily. Who can mm. talk? So I've mainly
1: asked so that if other GPs are interested in something uh, in their own hometown, I think it's a wonderful thing. Contact Rev if you're Absolutely. interested in pinching his idea and use it in your town. I think that'd be a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Thank you all very much, and thank you, Rev. It's been a delight. Thanks Justin, thanks for all
0: your help today. Thanks for listening, we'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Program.